0: For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit RedemptionOKC.com. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to me to Luke chapter 5. We've got uh, this series we've been working through on hospitality, which hopefully it's changing your idea of what hospitality is, and um, uh, if any of you watch in movies, you like, You probably know me, you know that I like movies quite a bit and uh, like a lot of different types of films, but uh, one of my favorite things that happens in movies is they, they capture so often these little glimpses of things that look like echoes of things you see in the scriptures. Uh, they have these things that that happen in the life of the story, and there's a reason. is because there's some truth that's there that, that's captured from the scriptures that's echoed, and artists tend to tap into that. There's something that they do, they want to do it. And one of my favorites is in a movie called Inception. And the movie Inception is Leo DiCaprio's characters got him through this intense dialogue with a man who's offering him a promise of a better life, but it's going to take him jumping in with full commitment and giving everything he's got and trusting this guy completely to try something he's never done before. And as they're interacting, there's this kind of buildup of the intensity of the scene and this kind of exchange where... there's a doorway and so often filmmakers put things in this doorway where it's like are you going to go through the doorway or are you not and it reminds me of Jesus going like I stand at the door and knock are you going to open it up and let me come in are you going to because there's these threshold moments that we have to face in life where you think "Man, am I going to step across that threshold or am I going to maybe hang back and keep it safe and so they're going through this talking through this threshold through a door of a helicopter and beginning this possibility of a new journey and Leo DiCaprio is wanting a little bit of certainty about the decision he's having to make. Can you relate to that? of you ever have to make a decision? You're like, I'm not asking for a lot. I just want to know for absolute certain that this is the right decision that I could not go wrong, right? That's the way we are, but that's not a threshold decision. Thresholds mean you got to step across and trust something new. And so what Leo DiCaprio says is, if I were to do this, if I even could do it, I'd need a guarantee. How do I know
1: that you can deliver? Feel that, don't you? The guy responds, he says, you don't, but I can. So do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret waiting to die alone? It's intense, isn't it? You Think about him standing there at the threshold thinking, man,
0: am I going to take a leap of faith or am I going to stay back and, and, and not take that risk? And what, the reason I bring this up is that we're all faced with these decisions all the time, and and that the spiritual life asks us to make a decision like that too, and I think one of the the reasons that it, just as I thought about the sermon for this week and thought about what it means for you and me to try to live out this call of Jesus, I realized how hard this is for us. How hard it is for us to come to a place where there's a threshold and go, man, I'm going to... I'm going to risk it all and just trust Jesus' way and put everything in. And, and I, I want certainty to know it's all going to work out the way I want to. And, and what you know if you've walked with Jesus any time is the way you think it's going to work out is not always
1: the way it's going to work out. It's always going to be good, but it's not necessarily going to be safe, as the old saying said.
0: But I love this image and this idea. And the thing about it is that that it's going to be impossible to follow Jesus if we try to squeeze Jesus into our everyday life and make him into this manageable thing that fits nicely into our calendars and our daytimers. That's just not the way the spiritual life works. The spiritual life requires this more of an all-in abandonment. I think one of the reasons we miss out on the full mission that God has given us is because so often we're dealing with half measures
1: and we're dealing with partial commitment that don't really want to trust Jesus with everything. And yet he's calling us to invest everything.
0: And if we try to approach church with faith that's small enough to accommodate everything in our schedule, we're never going to really step into the risk that I think Jesus wants to invite us into. Now, when I look at the Gospels and the life of Jesus, if you go through and you read the book, if you read what it says about Jesus— there's not a whole lot that was just kind of partial half measures sort of dipping my toe in the shallow end sort of a call that jesus was putting out was it jesus is like you either jump in the deep end or you don't get wet like that's the way that's the way the spiritual life works it's you know if you want to find your life you got to lose it you know, if you want to find the great treasure you need to sell everything you own buy the field and then you'll find the thing that's of great value but what we see in Jesus is there's not this Jesus that's just kind of trying to close a deal and bargain with us. He's not coming to us going like, hey, I've got this transactional thing I'd like to do. And if you give me just a little bit, I'll give you a little bit. It's just it's not the way that anything works. There's this revolutionary uh, kind of call that Jesus is coming to change the way we think about everything and the way we approach all of life. And so if you've got your Bibles, look at Luke chapter five. We're going to look at this passage and we're going to look at a short story. And I just want to tell you, we're going to take three things we're going to do today. First, we're going to look at Luke 5 and look at this, uh, this passage. We're going to see what revolutionary grace led Jesus to be and to do. So what, what this, uh, this concept of revolutionary grace, what it led Jesus to be personally and what it led him to do. And then we're going to talk about why revolutionary grace is so powerful. And we're going to stop for just a minute and step out of that passage and look at the big picture. And I want you to understand what it means, the enormous thing it means for you and for me to understand revolutionary grace. And then thirdly, we're going to see how that revolutionary grace leads us to become and to do something new. Jesus' grace is going to lead us to become something new and to do something new. And what we're going to see through all that is that if we're not befriending in meaningful ways, other people who do not know God, then we're not following Jesus fully in our love for our neighbors. If we're not befriending those in our city who don't know God like Jesus did, then we're not fully following Jesus into the mission that he's called us to. Friends, let's look at, let's look at Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in verse uh, 27. It says, and after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, Levi arose and followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do they eat with eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need a doctor. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. And as we look at this, the first thing we see here is, is, is really that revolutionary grace led Jesus to be something and to do something. Uh, that was very important. Now in this story, tax collectors, we talked about this a little bit last week, but tax collectors were outcasts. I don't know any culture that likes tax collectors because no one wants to pay taxes. Uh, There's a great Ron Sonson clip uh, from Parks and Rec where he sits down with a little girl and he takes her lunch and he dumps it out on a table and he says, I'm going to explain the way government works to you. And he takes her sandwich and he unwraps her sandwich and takes half of it and takes a giant bite and eats almost all of one half of her sandwich. Then he takes her chips and dumps them out and takes chips and throws them in his mouth and he looks at her and goes, you just learned about taxes. It's the way the life works. You need to understand that all those things were you were yours. Or, uh, who, who owned that, that lunch when you walked in the room? She said, what well, was mine? And he said, and did, did I have a right to eat any of that? And she said, no. And he said, that's taxes. Uh, because he doesn't like it, right? And that's the way we all feel about tax collectors is they're the people that take all of our stuff. And no one wants uh, to be a tax collector. And that culture is even worse. Because you actually had an enemy Rome that had taken over their territory and enslaved their people. So it'd be like Russia taking over Ukraine, and then Putin coming in and charging them and saying, we're sending all this back to Moscow to do with it whatever I want. And so this, that's the way that they would have felt about tax collectors, is they're the guy that comes and knocks on your door and says, I want to take your stuff and send it to your, the head of your enemy, and they're going to live off of that. And so this was even more intense in the way they looked at it. Uh, because they were oftentimes oppressive and did illegal things. So uh, as long as they sent enough home, uh, Rome was happy with with their collections as long as they sent what was due. So oftentimes what tax collectors would do is, let me just take a little bit more. So if they want 40%, I'll take 47%. Seven goes in my pocket, 40 goes to you. Goes, goes to Rome and you can live off the rest. So people knew that this is the way they worked and they didn't like it. Now here's the first thing I noticed in this passage. It says, after Jesus finished this big episode that we will talk about in a minute, it says he
1: saw a tax collector named Levi. You know how easy it is for us to walk past people and not see them? And
0: yet Jesus Jesus didn't just just observe that there's a guy over there named a tax collector, but he saw, he noticed, he observed a tax collector named Levi. It was personal. Jesus didn't didn't just broad stroke him as, uh, he's not important, he's just a tax collector. He says, there's a tax collector named Levi, and he saw him. And Luke, the writer of this, points it out. He saw him because he was a person made in the image of God. He saw him because he was a person who was worth something. He was a person who had potential. He was a person who who was a, a possible one to receive the Grace of God, and Jesus began to see that friends, how often do we walk past people without see them, and how often do we fail to see the potential that this person could be someone who would eventually have a redemption story to tell if someone shared with them the revolutionary grace of Jesus? So the first thing we see is Jesus saw them uh, Jesus um, also knew that he had a name, and so it was personal. Jesus initiated a relationship with this person. But it's interesting because Jesus also humbly received from this guy, doesn't he? Notice what it says. It says that Jesus uh, noticed that the friendship goes two ways with Levi because Levi invited Jesus to his house. And Jesus stepped into Levi's home and Jesus ate Levi's food. And Jesus met and interacted and became friends with Levi's friends. So it wasn't just that Jesus came and Jesus says to Levi, Levi, come and follow me. And so he invites him to follow Jesus but Jesus also says but I'm willing to go and to eat with you and to meet your friends and to have a relationship with you on your turf. And so there's this two-way sort of a relationship thing that's happening there. Now, what what's interesting about that culture, and we've talked about this some in the past, but sharing a meal was an especially big deal at that party. You notice what the what the Pharisees say as they begin to look at this, is they grumble looking at Jesus and they say to his disciples why does your, what is your master, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, you notice there's a label that they put on that, wasn't, that Luke didn't use. If you look back just a little bit before, what Luke wrote was, Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house and there was a great company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. What do the Pharisees say? Why is he having a great feast with tax collectors and sinners see pharisees self-righteous religious people in this in this scene they see it as an us versus them sort of a demographic others mean sinners we mean the righteous and so they see this as kind of a us against them sort of a mentality and in that world what what you see is the problem that they had wasn't that the the food and the drink served at the party the problem was the guest list See, they were upset, not because of the food that they were eating. They were upset that they weren't on the guest list, and Jesus was hanging out with people who didn't look and think and act like they did. So they were frustrated. Now, meals in that world meant more than filling your belly. In fact, to welcome someone to a table was an offer of friendship, community, and connection. So in that world, if you were an enemy with someone and you sat down and said, hey, I want to invite you in for a meal, what you were offering was I'm offering you reconciliation and renewed relationship. So if you're my enemy and I invite you, I'm saying we can be reconciled and now enter into a new season in the life of our relationship. That was the way with enemies. If you sit down with a friend, you're offering saying, hey, I want to deepen and invest further in this relationship. And so you're inviting them in. And that's why Jesus sharing drinks and laughter with tax collectors and others, or sinners, was so dumbfounding to the Pharisees. They didn't understand why Jesus would want to hang out with them. In fact, in their dietary regulations, kosher food, rules about cleanliness, all the things that they had in terms of their dietary law of the Old Testament and the Jewish codes... Jews rarely ate with Gentiles at all because uh, they would rather play it safe and cautious and not take a risk on doing something that might make them unclean and unable to go to worship. So they said, well, if that has the potential of me stepping into a bad place, I'll just completely avoid those people altogether in order to protect myself. Now, here's what I know about you and me. Uh, How many of you are really concerned as you leave today and go to lunch about kosher dietary codes and religious laws related to food? I'm going to guess none of you are really thinking about that. Some of you are worried about calories. Some of you are worried about cholesterol content. Like there's things we worry about with food, but it's not to have any spiritual or religious uh, connotations to us at all. But in their world, it did. Now, uh, it's easy for us to kind of look down on that and go, well, that's just kind of weird. I don't really understand that it is. But here's the thing. We, we keep our distance from people who are not like us in different ways, don't we? Maybe those whose politics or their values or their morality or their behavior doesn't look like us, uh, we, we have this kind of natural innate as human beings sense that we become aware of the optics of how's it going to be perceived if I'm seen with this group or that group? How's it going to be received by that group if I'm seen with this group? How is it, uh, what are people going to think if I'm, if I'm yucking it up at a table with a bunch of people that look this way if I might be perceived in a different way if I went to a different group? And so we make these choices and we think about these things and it's natural. We feel these things just like they did. But Jesus, it's interesting, goes and meets with these tax collectors and others. The Pharisees have this thing that says, oh no, we're never going to be like them. The others are sinners. Why would you want to be with them? So what does this tell us about the religious people? It's interesting that here that they were they were grumbling about what the to the Pharisees, I mean to the disciples about what Jesus did uh it's one of the sub little subtle points that takes place in this passage is that that the Pharisees are there and they're watching this go down and so Jesus goes into this house and he sits down with tax collectors and sinners and he's having this meal what do the Pharisees do they don't go in and talk to Jesus they actually are over here talking to Jesus disciples if you look at the text it says they pulled Jesus disciples aside and said hey what's he doing so there's this kind of secret conversation happening about what's over there. But in just a minute, who's Jesus gonna to talk to? It's interesting because they're talking to Jesus' disciples. Jesus is over here. All of a sudden, Jesus is gonna come out he's gonna to go to the Pharisees and say, hey, I'm right here. Like, I know what you're saying. Let me just have this conversation directly with you. But we see these two radically different approaches, the Pharisees' way and Jesus' way. Think about the differences we see in the passage. The Pharisees are grumbling Jesus is gracious. Pharisees are are, are hyper-religious. Jesus is rejoicing. Pharisees' way is closed. Jesus' way is open to the possibility. Their way is unwelcoming. Jesus' way is welcoming. Their way, uh, as we get down, you see a little bit later, is fasting. And we don't have time to work through that. But Jesus says, I've come, and because I've come to rescue these people, my way is feasting. They come in self-righteousness. Jesus comes recognizing your need. The Pharisee's way is proud, Jesus' way is humble. Do you feel the difference between those two lists? And you feel the difference when you're in the, in the midst of people that look like Pharisees and when you're in the midst of people that look like Jesus? You, you know, you sense the difference when you're in the presence of people in different camps, don't you? And what we see through this whole passage is that the grace of Jesus had come to turn the entire world upside down. That's what's so revolutionary about what it is that we're going to see. In fact, verses 31 and 32, that's why Jesus says, it's what says, um, this is why I came. I came for the sick. Uh, the sick are the ones who need a doctor. I came for those who are sinners in need of saving. What does Jesus mean by his statement? Was he labeling Levi and his friends sinners? Now, the Pharisees already labeled them sinners. Jesus and Luke earlier just called them tax collectors and others. It was the Pharisees, the religious types, that called them sinners. What is it? Um, Jesus wasn't just trying to label them sinners and label the Pharisees as the righteous. Uh, Jesus wasn't really saying that the religious people didn't need help. What he's saying is this kind of tongue-in-cheek sort of a joke. What Jesus is saying is, the only way I can be a doctor to you is if you know that you are sick. Uh, when do you go to a doctor? I mean, you may go for a well check, but typically when you call a doctor it's because you're sick and you need some meds. Like, dude, I can't breathe. I got all this thing going down. I feel awful. I got aches. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the doctor. I need you to tell me what to do to get rid of this so I can get back to normal because I don't feel right right now. But Jesus is saying, if you don't really recognize you're sick, you're never going to come to me to be made healthy. The only way I can become your savior is if you understand that you need saving. And so this is this kind of revolutionary concept that Jesus is talking about. And here's the thing. Every meal Jesus ever had was with sinners. When Jesus sat down with the Pharisees, he was having a meal with sinners. When he sat down with tax collectors, he was having a meal with sinners. When he sat down with either either party, uh, that was his only option. If Jesus was going to enter our world and sit down and have a meal, he was going to share that meal with sinners. Because that, that covered everyone. And so Jesus only sees
1: two kinds of people in the world. He sees sinners who receive grace and sinners who still need grace. Do you realize that that's the only, the only kind of people that you meet too? The
0: only pe- everyone you interact with fits in the category of sinners. But they're either sinners who are receiving grace from Christ or sinners who still need grace from Christ. It's why Jesus, it's interesting if you read the rest of the Gospels and you see all throughout church history, Jesus has been known as the friend of sinners. And and what's what's interesting about that title was, that title initially was meant as as something to be slanderous. It was meant to be a put-down. They're like, oh, Jesus, that loser dude's a friend of sinners. He's not righteous like us. But because of the revolution of what Jesus did, a friend of sinners is a song we sing about. A song we rejoice in. Something, it's a title that we look at and it's a badge of honor. And we go, dude, my Jesus is a friend of sinners. And you know what that means? That means you can get in on this. It means you've got the opportunity to get to know him and to connect with him as well. And that really is the second thing we want to look at in this lesson, which is why revolutionary grace is so powerful why this is the thing that changes the world. If you look at your Bible, I want to just step back and kind of look at the big picture for just a minute. We've been looking at Luke 5, verse 27 to 32. If you go back just before that, so you go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls his first disciples. And when Jesus goes and Um, And and says, cast down your nets on this side. uh, These fishermen that seem to know everything about fishing, uh, they're like, ah, it's not going to work. All of a sudden, they bring up this big haul. They're not sure what's going on. They're like, this guy's got some kind of miraculous connection to God. Something's happening. And it's interesting because the first response you see is that Simon Peter uh, says, uh, when when Jesus says that, he says, "Uh, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Uh, It's interesting that he immediately said, If you've got that much of a direct line with God, I obviously don't. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I can't even be in your presence. And Jesus says, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. There's something that's happening here, isn't there? You look at the very next passage. Jesus cleanses a leper. Is the title. that uh, probably is in your Bible there. And what happens in this is, in that world, the people had a, a disease called leprosy. It was a skin disease, and it was very contagious, and they were fearful of it. So there are leper colonies. We still see this sometimes in India, and, and they're outcasts, and they're people that are put outside the city because no one wants to get that on them. And in fact, if you do, you're not allowed to go to temple because you're made unclean. So to be around them was not just to get sick. It was to become spiritually unclean and to be unfit to enter in the presence of God. You were not able to do this. What's interesting is this leper's there and he reaches up and says, Jesus, if you want, you can heal me. And you notice in verse verse 13, it says, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched the man. This was a thing that was never done in that world. You kept your distance because you were going to be contaminated both physically but spiritually. You would become unclean. And this man says, Jesus, if, if you will, you could heal me. And what's Jesus say? It's interesting because Jesus says something very
1: surprising. He says, I will. He doesn't say be healed. What's he say? Be clean. Jesus is switching categories, isn't he? Jesus heals the man. He says immediately, uh, notice
0: what happens. Immediately the leprosy left him. So Jesus healed him, but Jesus is breaking up the categories because he wants everyone to see that there's something bigger that's going on. I'm not just healing him, but now the man who used to the, the unclean person who used to touch me, and if he touched me, I would become an outcast who is unclean. Instead, Jesus says, "I'm stepping into the scene, and I'm going to touch him, and I, it, the, the uncleanness doesn't move from him to me, but who I am moves to him." He is now clean. Jesus isn't made unclean. The man's made clean. There's something radical and different that's taking place here. Look at the next verses. It talks about, in verse 17, it talks about Jesus healing a paralytic. In this famous story, it's a man uh, who's paralyzed, and his friends go, and they go and, and drop him down through a roof, because they want him to heal, uh, they, they want to see him healed, and they can't get to Jesus, and the door's blocked, and these guys are so committed to their friend that they go and drop him down through the roof and, and ask Jesus to heal this man. And as they do, and there's an interesting thing that takes place here as well, because they're asking Jesus to heal him, but again, Jesus says something really surprising when you look at this passage. You notice what it um, what it says is they, they, they um, lowered him down and when Jesus saw their faith, he said, he did, you know, they're, they're asking him for what? To heal this paralyzed guy. What is it that Jesus says to him that's surprising? Man, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the paralyzed guy, you're probably going like, I'm grateful for that, but I really wanted to walk. And Jesus is crossing categories up. He's saying, I've got something to do for you That's not really what you think you need, but it's the thing that's even more important to you. And what happens when Jesus um, says your sins are forgiven? Verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to to speak, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins except for God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? Well, which one is easier? Well, it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because we can't really see that, right? It's, it's harder to say rise and walk because visibly something's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. And it's going to be obvious which the answer is. But there's something, there's, there's sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing Jesus is doing. Because the one that's actually harder is to say your sins are forgiven. The one that's easier for him is to say rise and walk. Jesus is flipping everything on its head. This is completely revolutionary. And Jesus says, But so that you may see and know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up the bed he'd been lying on. he went home, glorifying God in amazement, seized them all. And they glorify God. And they were filled with awe, saying, Look at the extraordinary things we've seen today. Friends, do you see what's happening in this passage? Do you see what's unfolding in the beauty of the way that Jesus is offering? See, in both answers, there's something surprising that happens. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, things are going to be radically different. In my kingdom, I can make the unclean clean. In my kingdom, I can forgive sins. In my kingdom, I can make the lame to
1: walk. In my kingdom, I'm going to spend time with sinners is what Jesus is saying. What's the very next passage?
0: Jesus goes to Levi, says, come follow me, and he sits down with sinners and tax collectors, and he has a feast, and he enjoys a feast with them all. Verse 31 and 32, now do you see why these verses are so important? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick.
1: The leper, the paralytic, they knew they were sick, so they came Asking for help, would you heal me physically?
0: I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You're not going to receive saving if you don't realize you're a sinner who needs it. And you come to me. What Jesus is saying is that all people need to repent and all people are sinners. Religious, non-religious types alike are soul sick and need to be forgiven. Friends, Paul sums it up in Romans 4, 5 and says this. He says it very bluntly and succinctly. It says that we're saved by believing in God who justifies the ungodly. That's what salvation is God justifying, making righteous, saving the ungodly people. Because when Jesus came to earth, that's all there was. There were none that fit the category of righteous except for him. So Christianity teaches that the only type of people that God justifies are the ungodly ones. Uh, Look to someone around you and say, You're an ungodly sinner. I mean, really, look at someone next to you and just say, you're an ungodly sinner. I mean, it seems really mean, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that that's the only category there is. You all fit that, but, so that's the bad news.
1: But I also have good news for you. Jesus came to be a doctor to the sick and a savior to sinners who are ungodly. God justifies, saves the, the ungodly. And
0: that's the good news. If you truly understand comprehend what Jesus is saying, this is powerfully revolutionary, isn't it? And maybe you're here today and you go, man, I, I feel more like Levi. Like I'm the outsider. I'm the outcast. I'm the one that doesn't fit the Pharisees' expectations. I'm the guy. There's good news for you. Jesus came to save sinners.
1: And every one of us fits that category. Friends, I've never gotten over the grace of God in my life. And you shouldn't either. Jesus still seeks and saves the lost. Jesus gave his holy life to pay for my sinful life. And friends,
0: what I did was I sinned and I sinned and I sinned. And what Jesus did was paid the penalty for my sin upon, my, upon a cross. The Bible says that Jesus is just like us except without sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. God justifies the ungodly, and he saves us. So here's, here's why I mention all that and talk about that. When we think about how do we interact with those around us, our doctrine, our theology, our understanding of who God came to save and why he did ought to compel us to go to everyone and see them in a certain way. And so our doctrine ought to drive our mission, and our theological beliefs and our gospel convictions ought to compel us into gospel mission. And work. Another way of saying this is, if anyone at all can get in on the new life and a relationship with God, then every relationship we have with everyone else in our world is filled with the potential for the revolutionary grace of God to go to work. I know that's kind of long, but just, just think through that for a minute. If anyone at all can get in on new life and a relationship with God, which is true, right? Christ came to die, the, to die for the ungodly. He saves the, those who are sinners, if, that fits, if, if all of us are sinners and all of us are ungodly. That means anyone at all can get in on this, which is good news. But that means that every relationship you have with everyone else in your world is filled with the potential for the revolutionary grace of God to go to work in any moment. And that ought to infuse meaning into every relationship that we have. So let's look at the last part of this. Um, how revolutionary grace leads us to become and do something new. The first thing we said was revolutionary grace led, God, led Jesus to become and do something. Then we, we saw kind of what that implications are that for the, kind of the power of revolutionary grace and what Jesus did. But then we see that revolutionary grace, when it comes to us, leads us to become something new and to do something new as well. And ultimately that is that we, we too are to become friends of sinners, that if we 're going to look like Jesus, we're going to be friends of sinners like Jesus. Our relationships typically move down the line and you think about what does it look like to you to build friendship with someone else? Uh, think about the relationships you have. They tend to move in a, in a progression that goes from stranger to acquaintance to friendship. Uh, that's a natural con- a pattern that conversations follow. Uh, when you first meet someone, what do you exchange? Basic information, where do you live, what do you do, do you have kids, who are you, what's your name? Like there's basic information that's exchanged and then we move past that and we start to get a little deeper. And we start to get to know like what, do you, what their likes and dislikes are. We get to know their dreams and their desires, their hurts and their regrets, their losses, their pain. But those things take time. And so as we think about um, kind of how do we move in friendship, I want to give you just some practical kind of baby steps to take. Uh, to go, what about Bob on you? But just like, what are some little baby steps you can take to begin moving in the direction of building friendships with people? Uh, The first is to do what Jesus did, see people. You notice Jesus, the first thing we saw was he saw a tax collector named Levi. We have to notice people around us. We get so busy, it's so easy just to run past our neighbors, to run past our coworkers, to run past our classmates at school, but we need to move towards people. We need to see them first. How would it change your perspective if you walked around and saw every person around you every day as a divine opportunity to get to know another person made in the image of God who's a potential recipient of the grace of God? If you just looked around and went, there's someone who needs grace. There's someone who needs grace. There's someone who needs grace. Who needs grace and Jesus could save them too. Yeah, let's see people first. Secondly is meet people. It means you just got to go walk across the room. You got to walk across the, the office, the the, the locker room, the, the street, and go introduce yourself to some people. One guy does this with what he calls the all, always rule. It's really easy. He says, if I see a neighbor I know, I always introduce myself. Always. Like if I see a neighbor, I don't walk past him. I just go, hi, I'm so-and-so. I live over here. And you get to know them. So we have to see people, but then we've got to take the initiative to meet people. Learn their name, write it down, create on your phone. Maybe start a little database and you begin to pray for that. Really the last one that we say is, or the next step, is we want to see people, meet people, then pray for people. Begin to pray for them and pray for what little you know. And then as you get to know them, as you begin to move from stranger to acquaintance in towards friendship, just begin to pray for the things in their life that you get to know. One of the things I've been amazed about, I've never had anyone turn down the offer when I say, man, can I just pray for you? Or how could I pray for you? I've never had anyone go, no. Almost every time they go, yeah, I've got this thing with my kid. Or yeah, I've got this work transition. Or yeah, my boss. Or, or, you know, there's something in their life where my mom's going through a really bad health crisis. Or there's something that's there and it builds this friendship and deepens our relationship when you just begin to pray for the actual things in their
1: life. So see people, meet people, pray for people. And then lastly, be a real friend to people. Just love them. Love them where they are. Um, they, they may know Jesus. They may not know Jesus. They may, love, they, they may
0: maybe reject any idea of going to church. They may not be interested in that. But develop a rhythm of interaction that just says, I'm going to be present and I'm going to love the person in front of me where they are. And I'm going to love them as they are. Because I see them as someone who's made in the image of God, who has the possibility of being changed by the revolutionary grace of God. And I believe that God in his divine sovereignty has put me in a relationship and in proximity to this person, that they are in my circle of influence. Friends, I'm not asking you to do something radically crazy in terms of dropping everything and changing your job and career and moving across the world, although God may lead you to do that. I'm just saying in the normal sphere and circle of your life, the people that you walk past
1: every day See them, meet them, pray for them, befriend them. And then at some point, what happens is when
0: the time is right, you may have an opportunity to share about the most important thing in
1: your life. As they go, well, tell me about you. What's important to you? And you go, there's this guy named Jesus who came and rescued me and changed my life. And I'd love to tell you about him if you're interested. We have an opportunity to share with them the good news friends let me just end by reading this
0: this is where we're headed one day you realize that the future that we have is going to be sharing a feast with all kinds of people who the revolutionary grace of god has saved and then we're going to move into a time of communion but isaiah 55 or isaiah 25 just listen to these words on the mountain the lord of hosts will make in the future for all peoples A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. In the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be on that day, it will be said on that day, behold, This is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, what we get to do between now and that day is we get to invite people to come and join that feast with us. And everyone you walk, walk to is someone who either knows the grace and is going to be there or they're in need of grace in order to be invited. We're the ones that get to tell them about the revolutionary grace of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would burden our hearts for our city, for our neighbors, for our friends and family who don't know Christ. Father, would you change lives forever? Would you give us just a a heart to see people, a heart to meet them, to pray for them, to befriend them? Father, help us to be light to our city in the name of Christ that we might take and share the revolution of grace of Christ with everyone that we meet. We need pray in Jesus' name. Amen.